Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina knows the value of giving pets the absolute best. That's why they only use trustworthy ingredient sources in their pet foods, and every ingredient in their products has a purpose. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 3rd. It's been almost six months since the beginning of shutdowns in the U.S. And when I, an American, look around at what is happening in other countries, I just have a feeling that we've been left behind. That all these other countries are starting to experience life post-pandemic, being able to travel, going back to offices and schools. And it just feels like everyone is having a big party without us, that they can enjoy life again with some risks, but usually safely and responsibly. And seeing how much we failed in comparison to the rest of the world, it's just so different from where we thought we should be. Last October... This big report came out, a review of pandemic preparedness of 195 countries. It was called the Global Health Security Index, and it came out of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and the Nuclear Threat Initiative. And these groups looked at all the 195 countries, and they gave them scores on how well prepared they were to handle the threat of a pandemic. And the U.S. came out number one. Joel Achenbach is a reporter on the Post Science Desk. The U.S. was supposed to be good at this. We had so many resources. We had surveillance and testing and expertise. And we were supposedly going to be ready for what's happened. And so when we fast forward to now at this point in the summer, it seems like that ranking does not actually reflect reality. Since then, when reality hit and the pandemic arrived, we have done dismayingly poorly. Maybe not the worst in the world, but by many metrics, the U.S. response has been stumbling at at best and in some ways just um, kind of shocking for many of our friends around the world who have looked at the U.S. and expected the U.S. to handle this so well. They are kind of amazed and appalled. We've had a number of hot spots in the U.S., For example, New York City back in March and April was just a terrible situation. And then we saw Florida and Texas and Arizona, California. The problem is, is that this is no longer a hotspot situation in the U.S. It's pretty much everywhere that you have a serious danger of virus transmission in this country. The map is turning red from coast to coast. If you look at much of the world, they did the most crucial thing, which is they drove down the transmission of the virus to very low levels before they reopened their economies. All the models, all the epidemiologists said, you got to get the, the, the pathogen at a really low level in your community before you start moving around again after you've had these shutdowns. Here in the U.S., many communities in many states just kind of jumped the gun. As other countries are reaching this point where they have 
begun to go back to normal, where their number of COVID cases are low enough that it is safe to start, you know, interacting with people again and, and going back to work. How are they looking at us, like, still in this crisis? I think that other countries are quite alarmed by the failure of the United States to do a better job of suppressing the virus. Because, first of all, it is definitely in their interest for everyone in the world to get this virus transmission down to a low level. Especially a place like the U.S. where, you know, so many Americans travel so much to the rest of the world that that it's very easy to imagine how there could be a resurgence of the virus someplace else because of Americans. That's right. And that's why a lot of countries have said we will not allow Americans to come into our country right now. So we were kind of blocked from traveling abroad. I think people would like to see the U.S. be a leader on this and not be fumbling and bumbling along the way we have right now because we have so many resources. This is the country that first sequenced the human genome. We have so much scientific and technical expertise. We need to be leading the way on behalf of the whole world and not struggling with basic questions like, is this real or not? Like Joel Achenbach, many of us have been haunted by this question. How did it go so wrong for the U.S.? But when we think about the U.S.'s failure, it's also instructive to look at what other countries have done. Today, we're taking listeners around the world, to our correspondents in Asia, Europe, and South America, to try to understand what's been happening in the countries that have gotten it right and the ones that have gotten it wrong. And we're starting in Beijing with Bureau Chief Anna Fifield. I am in Beijing in my apartment, and life is really surprisingly normal here. So last night I went out for dinner with my son and we did some shopping, and you would not know that anything was going on at all. You know, you can go into shops, you can sit inside restaurants, people do wear masks when they're walking around. I recently went to this historic part in the middle of Beijing, the Drum and Bell Tower area. And, you know, it's a quintessential Beijing scene. There's these beautiful buildings. And there are, of course, as quintessentially Beijing, there are a group of elderly people sitting around the public mahjong tables playing mahjong out there in the sun and the heat and cicadas chirping everywhere. They were not wearing masks. They obviously all knew each other and they're all sitting close and having a great time. When I talked to them about the situation in China and other people around that area, they all were quite proud of the way China had gotten on top of things. You know, there was a lot of dissatisfaction here in February at the Communist Party cover-up of the origins of the virus and the initial outbreak of the virus. But since then, they've been able to see what has happened in the rest of the world, and particularly in the United States. And they, you know, express surprise. You know, why is the US not getting on top of this? Why are they not instituting restrictions so that they can control the outbreak? 
China is a one-party communist state with a very strongman leader, you know, almost authoritarian. They are able to control 1.4 billion people in ways that democracies do not and cannot and do not want to. So when they order the shutdown of, you know, whole cities and, you know, people have to pay attention because they will face police action if they, if they do not. Four and a half thousand people died in China during the outbreak. So well, that is a, you know, a tragic number. It is tiny compared to the death toll in the United States and worldwide right now. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Post. Some people have attributed China's success in containing COVID to its authoritarian government. But other countries with very different forms of government were successful by taking similar steps. At first, really, there had been no major outbreaks outside of China. Poi ancora sono sospese tutte le manifestazioni organizzate. The most active hotspot right now is Italy. Nearly 200 people there have died in just the last 24 hours. Italy is at war. Coronavirus has hit the country harder than China. The outbreak has imposed a total lockdown. For at least a two-week stretch, people were a little dizzied and stunned and didn't know how to respond and, and didn't even know how to be safe. Agony in Europe tonight as Italy's death toll passes 10,000. St. Peter's Square at the Vatican empty as the country with the highest death rate grapples with getting the spread under control. Stiamo affrontando un'emergenza, un'emergenza nazionale. And yet, the behavioral changes happened very quickly after that. Mask wearing always indoors. It was mandatory and remains mandatory. And people have been cautious. And that, that does continue today into the summer, even as people are out and about when they're going indoors, they're wearing a mask and they're not putting up a fight about it. I am Chico Harlan, the Washington Post's Rome Bureau Chief. I mean, the economy stopped. The lockdown really was a real lockdown. It wasn't a lockdown in name only where people's options of what to do were limited. No, people, people were fully unable to do anything other than go walk the dog, go get groceries or go buy medicine. And if you left the house, you were supposed to have a form that became like ever more bureaucratic that showed your purpose for leaving the house. People initially weren't allowed to travel between regions. Now they are. People weren't initially able to go to museums or, or have leisure activities. Now they are. Schools were, of course, closed almost right out of the gate. Now the government is saying they will reopen nationwide in mid-September. And if you just go around the streets of Rome or, or other Italian cities, you do see some semblance of, of normal life. People are socializing outdoors. And the, the major difference is that normally tourists who are here in, in such numbers that they literally change the feel of, of Italy itself. This year, they're not here at all. Some Europeans, a few, but there is this inescapable feeling of emptiness in the most touristed parts of Italy. The Amalfi Coast, to me, was always a place that I never wanted to visit because I, I kind of pictured it like a Disneyland. You know, it is, along with Venice, an example of over-tourism, like a prime example of how many parts of Europe have let tourism just undo any sense of actual place. 
And there is an industry that over the decades has built up around, around catering to this, this kind of Disney-sized tourism every spring and summer. So the local population does depend on it. And generally, in my, as, I, as I learned, feels pretty positively about it. There are more Americans who visit the Amalfi Coast in a summer than there are Italians who visit. And when you talk about the ones who spend the most, it's the Americans. You know, the Amalfi Coast is kind of this like jeweled coastline with, with so many options for having a five-star getaway, you know, a great place for a honeymoon or for a once-in-a-lifetime trip. And 40% of the people that stay at those places are Americans. This year, Americans are not coming. And those places are either open in a very limited fashion or not open at all. You know, there's a recognition that Italy needs tourism. Maybe not the same level of tourism that it had before, but tourism in some form, because that is how the hotels survive. That's how restaurants in so many places survive. Even in Rome right now, the majority of hotels are still closed. And it's very weird to walk through a major city where on every block, practically, you can see a hotel that's just got its windows kind of smeared up from months of disuse, and there's no clear sign when they'll reopen. Chico Harlan is the Rome bureau chief for The Post. And even when things start to reopen for travel, it can be a strange experience when people get there. What's up, friends? This is Yuma. Day one, or I guess day zero, of my 14-day quarantine begins. That's Yuma Kim. He's a recent college graduate who lives in California. And in March, he tried to go visit his family in South Korea. But before he could do that, he had to spend a few days isolating at a quarantine hotel. I'm to my crib. It's what I wore to the airport. It's my hotel room. Got the bathroom. Got the bag of supplies for 14 days. Paper, toilet paper, blankets, and other things. Got a bed. Thank God I have a window. I have a view. It's actually, you know, it's not bad at all in terms of, you know, it could have been worse. Could have had no window. South Korea was one of the first countries to be hit in the early stages of the coronavirus outbreak. But its government responded quickly and aggressively. They started mass-scale testing. And they required foreign visitors to quarantine in special hotels for up to two weeks. Um, And here are my instructions that say that I can't, I physically cannot leave this room. So that's fun. Well, hope I don't go crazy. Kim recorded an unboxing video for every meal that was left at his door while he was there. Got some bibimbap, rice underneath, ingenious design. Got that gochujang. Got a side order of things with some more stuff and some Cheetos. Lunch, first day of full quarantine. Got some some stuff and some rice with the egg on it and uh, some corn, some sesame things, a cake. And this is actually how I've been drinking coffee because they only give you these tiny little cups to pour yourself coffee. And I don't have anything to like mix coffee with. So I would pour half into here, half into there and like pour it back and forth into a third cup until eventually it gets evenly distributed and then drink it. Got to entertain yourself in these trying times. Here's a closer look inside my bag of supplies. Don't know if they'll do another supply drop later or if this is all I have to work with, 
but I have five things of ramen and five sodas and some coffee. Every once in a while, you can hear announcements over a speaker in his room. Our medical team will visit residents' room to check body temperature from 10.30 a.m. Please be prepared so that the medical team... Day two, meal seven, got this meat thing, some kimchi, rice, dessert, salad, and a drink. Actually, a normal quantity of food this time, so I may not, you know, explode. You should fill the sink with hot water. You can also use electric kettle to boil the water. Thank you for your understanding. Something that I didn't notice until the loudspeaker announcement just a moment ago was that all the food I've been eating has been cold. Like, none of it's been heated up. Hey friends, so here's a fun update. Apparently, my parents have been calling the Korea's equivalent of the CDC, asking them why I can't go spend quarantine with them. Which, you know, is okay, I guess. Kim's parents were able to get through to the government, and he was allowed to leave the hotel after just a few days in isolation. He finished out his quarantine at his parents' house. What's up, guys? My quarantine is over. Don't have Wi-Fi, so this will be uploaded later, but... Freedom sure is nice. Today, South Korea has had fewer than 15,000 coronavirus cases. 300 people have died. The country had a small surge of cases in May and July, but it managed the clusters by relying on contact tracing, isolation, and high-capacity testing facilities. That is not the case in Brazil, the country that is second to the U.S. in total number of COVID cases and deaths. As a sign of just how bad things have gotten there, Brazil's president and first lady have both tested positive for COVID. Producer Ted Muldoon spoke to our reporter there. My name is Terry McCoy, and I am the foreign correspondent for The Washington Post in Rio de Janeiro. So, Terry, how often have you been getting outside of your apartment lately? Um, not very often. Brazil is one of the few countries in the world where there has never really been a second wave because we never got through the first wave. 2.5 million people have been infected. 90,000 people have died. In Brazil, there was a sense that the, the country was just coming apart at the seams. It was, it was literally melting down. Well, I mean, how has the healthcare system been handling this? Terribly. I mean, the healthcare system in Brazil is a marvel across much of the developing world, but it has not withstood the surge of the coronavirus in much of the country. There have been rampant shortages of basic medicines and shortages of beds, shortages of ventilators. There have been cities like Rio de Janeiro where the waiting list to get into the hospital system has has exceeded 1,000 people. In Manaus, there have been ambulances just driving around with nowhere to take patients for hours and hours. There's nowhere to take the patient. You have a patient dying in the back of your ambulance. There's nowhere to go. But so why has the virus allowed to go unchecked? I mean, what response has there been from like the federal government? They've almost been advocating a policy of inaction. From the very beginning, the president of Brazil, a man named Jair Bolsonaro, he has been trying to minimize the disease to such an extent that his dismissal of the disease has become the defining 
characteristic of his presidency. And that even after he himself was infected with the disease, he continued to minimize it. He got sick himself? He got sick himself, yeah. Even he he got sick himself. And then during the press conference... Boy, sem problema. Você pode ver, eu fui muito criticado pelas minhas posições no passado. To announce that he had been stricken with the disease, and all these reporters were nearby him, he was talking about whatever, and then all of a sudden he says, oh yeah, you know, I just tested positive too. And one of the reporters is like, you just tested positive? And he's like, yeah, yeah. E ele acabou de dar positivo. Deu positivo, Deu positivo, deu positivo. Everyone's like, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> was he wearing a mask? And then he was that moment, but then at the end of the press conference, he takes like four steps back. Fast, 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 fast. Fast, 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 and he says, he says, everybody, look, I'm perfectly fine. He takes off his mask. <laughs> and, oh and everyone's like, and so, I mean, it's funny, but it's also ludicrous and insane. And, you know, what that has meant in a country like this, in a country that it was always going to be extraordinarily difficult to get a handle on coronavirus. You have an extraordinarily diverse country, 210 million people. You can't get Brazilians normally to agree on anything. It was always going to be a difficult challenge to get a national coordinated response, but any sort of attempt to do that has been undercut at every level by a federal government led by Jair Bolsonaro, who has done nothing but minimize the disease. What about things like lockdowns and social distancing? What about testing? Have they been instituted at all? There has never really been a national testing campaign. The other basic health practices like lockdowns, quarantines, and isolation, they have been instituted. And they have been instituted at municipal levels and at state levels. But the difficulty is that without a federal response, there has been so much disagreement between cities, between states, and people continue to travel all over. So what that has resulted in is that there even efforts locally to get a hold of the disease have not really been all that successful in the long term. You know, like when I hear things like a lack of federal coordination on lockdowns and testing and public officials downplaying the effects of the virus. I mean, it sounds like you could be talking about the United States. Yeah. Brazil has followed much the same path as the United States. You have two countries that are led by populist leaders who have done a lot to try to minimize the impacts of it and really try to prioritize uh, the economic damage over the health damage. But what is different from the United States is it does not have the health infrastructure to be able to handle the virus. It does not have an organization like the CDC. And also the difference is that Brazil, it varies so dramatically across the country and that you have places that are very developed, like places like Sao Paulo or some other places in the south that do have more capacity than you have places like in the north that have very, very little capacity. They're very, very poor Mm -hmm. and have been just walloped by the disease, just walloped by it. At this point, the number of deaths has plateaued, it seems, at around 1,300 a day. But that's 1,300 a day, and it's been 1,300 a day for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's sort of like we're just treading water in this purgatory And there's not really any inclination that it's going to get any better anytime soon. Um, People don't even talk about it. People don't even, officials don't even talk about trying to institute new policies to try and get a a control of the virus. It's almost like we're just waiting for a vaccine. And it's like Brazilians, including, especially Jair Bolsonaro, to speak about it with a certain type of fatalism. Like we're all going to get it. Mm. It's just our destiny. It's the Brazilian destiny to get the virus. 
And he said, quote, the virus is like rain. It will reach you. Esse vírus é quase como já dizia no passado, era muito criticado. Era como uma chuva, né? Vai, vai, vai atingir você. Alguns, alguns não, né? Terry McCoy is our foreign correspondent based in Brazil. When you look at these differences in the global response to COVID, who's doing well, who's not doing well, you start to see some themes come up about what it takes for a country to handle a pandemic responsibly. And that's why we wanted to talk to one of her colleagues, Ishan. You have seen authoritarian countries like Vietnam, for example, handle this incredibly efficiently. And you have seen democracies handle it very well as well with the degree of transparency that's impossible in authoritarian states. I think it's quite interesting to, to point to a remark that the famous political philosopher Francis Fukuyama made recently. He said, we may not see a clear correlation between whether democracy handles this well or not, but certainly, and this is demonstrated by the situations in, in the United States and Brazil, certainly there's definitely a correlation between being a populist leader and handling this badly. And that certainly has been borne out as the months of the pandemic have dragged on. So how do you think that has changed more largely how the rest of the world looks at the U.S.? I think it certainly marks a kind of an inflection point. The rest of the world sees the U.S. and sees its its vast and apparent failures in dealing with the situation. It sees... A country that and a society that's to be pitied. Uh, the fact that we have none of the solidarity and political unity that other democracies have been able to show in this time of crisis. The fact that the handling of the pandemic has been so chaotic uh, and so inadequate in so many places uh, in the country has revealed, you know, genuine problems with the American political system uh, as well. So there's a degree of pity, there's a degree of sadness about what is perceived to be a, a kind of catalytic effect for the waning of a great power. And, and there's obviously a bit of trepidation because of the U.S. with all its resources, all its scientific know-how, all its capacity, tremendous state capacity in some ways, can so shambolically navigate its way through this disaster then it raises questions about what a lasting and effective global response could look like. But I wonder if there's also like a schadenfreude in there as well in terms of the fact that the U.S. has always kind of considered itself the leading voice in global leadership and has not been wary about, you know, pointing fingers at other countries and their failures or systems of government that they feel are failing, and that now we are the ones who are in a place to be pitied. You know, we've been talking for more than two decades at this point about this arrival of a quote-unquote post-American world, a world where America's status as this vast unipolar superpower uh, is challenged or is 
slowly shifting towards something where power is a bit more shared, where other countries take on global leadership in ways they haven't in the past. And certainly moments like this, they may not necessarily demonstrate that a certain era of American power is over, but it certainly makes people more aware of the fact that the U.S. is maybe not what it once was, or the U.S. is perhaps in a situation now where we need not look to it for the kind of galvanizing leadership that we've seen in the past, the capacity to set benchmarks and set precedents that it has in the past on a whole range of issues. And this is part of that process, part of a waning that certainly preceded the Trump presidency, but we're now in a moment where Trump has helped push the conversation or helped at least accelerate the conversation about what comes after the waning of American preeminence on the world stage. And I wonder if, you know, years from now, we'll look back on that changing global relationship and the changing importance of America on a global stage and that this pandemic, even when the pandemic is over, that that this pandemic will be the thing that we remember as the moment where everyone realized that the U.S. is not actually so powerful. That's that's certainly a possibility. And that's certainly a narrative that may be pushed in some parts of the world, especially in Beijing. But it also could be a moment, and this of course hinges on what happens in the election, where you may see a kind of reemergence of American power or a different form of American power. Joe Biden's camp has made it very clear that should they come to power, you'll really see a reinvigoration of the U.S.'s role in the world, a, a return to the Paris climate deal, or at least the, the process around it, and embrace once more of multilateralism and the kinds of geopolitical projects, whether it's on trade or security, that uh, U.S. allies in Europe and Asia really want Washington to be part of. And so it could be a moment where America embraces <laughs> its, its pretty important role to play in a multilateral new world order that isn't necessarily defined by sheer American preeminence. And issues like a pandemic, and we're probably going to see more of these in the decades and years to come, really do require international coordination and leadership. It's been very clear over the course of this pandemic that nationalist solutions to this have a very short uh, shelf life and, and very clear limits. And in terms of this idea of America's shifting standing on the world stage, I think that that's even playing out in the personal lives of Americans who have historically had this privilege of being able to travel almost anywhere in the world with relatively few restrictions in a way that is not applicable to most other people in the world. And that suddenly they're in this position where some countries are saying, no, we don't want you here. We don't want you to travel here. We are afraid of of having you in our country. And I think that is a very strange position for a lot of Americans to be considering. But I also wonder if that will have an effect on the psyche of average Americans getting a taste of what it's like to not have that historic privilege of U.S. citizenship and a U.S. passport. You would hope that that this kind of experience would help Americans understand what, what what so many people elsewhere in the world have to go through, even in pre-pandemic times, to just cross borders. But I think I think the real 
lesson that many Americans may take away from this. And this is that this is a kind of strange arc of their America first moment. We we entered a political cycle half a decade ago with a leader who promised to close borders and raise walls. And now they really feel themselves behind that closed border and those raised walls in certain ways. Ishan Tharoor writes today's worldview for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's show and what places in the world you've been hearing about that have had interesting responses to the pandemic. Share your thoughts by emailing us at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.